Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, everyone at home. Welcome, everyone here. Anybody attending for the first time tonight? Can the stream? Welcome, 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 welcome back. Uh, welcome to anybody who's new tuning in from Zoom. I said this last week, but I, I like to try to remember to to remind myself and to remind all of you that attending a class like this is, you know, there's different intentions and different um, uh, motivations. One certainly is to learn about Buddhism and to learn what the Buddha taught and how we can apply it and that kind of uh, looking for guidance and instruction and support in a meditation practice, Buddhist-based meditation practice. Um, but another big, a really central and a central part of my motivation for, um, I've been teaching this class uh, for two decades, for like 20 years I've been teaching Monday night, 16 years here in Los Angeles and before that New York City and before that San Francisco and before that Santa Cruz. And, and a big part of my motivation is just to, to the opportunity for people to gather, not so much so that I mean, it's, it's great. I feel um, always happy to introduce people and support people in their practice of, of Buddhism, of the Dharma. But uh, my sense of Sangha is, uh, Sangha, the Buddhist word for community, is just the importance of getting together. Um, and of course, it's nice to get some reminders and get some instructions and hear a talk and some things to reflect on. But uh, more importantly is the community and, and just being part of uh, and if you come regularly, developing friendships and connections and um, that will sustain us. You know, we meet once a week or twice a week or however often, but really developing uh, relationships with other practitioners, people who are on this path, this path that, as our you know, name uh, points to, it states, this path that leads against the stream. And to be practicing, to trying to be awake in this world, to trying to be kind and compassionate and forgiving in this world where kindness and compassion and wakefulness are not um, rewarded or not uh, supported or not marketed, <laughs> or they, they're starting to be marketed a little bit more like, you know, America will try to sell you anything <laughs> if they can monetize compassion, <laughs> it'll become an app. Oh, wait, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, anyways, I don't wanna to talk too much shit, go on a full tangent. Um, but just the, the opportunity to get together and sit together and, and what I have to say is very repetitive. Uh, what the Buddha had to say is very repetitive. The Buddha's message, the teachings are quite simple and you're going to hear it the same shit over and over 
and over <laughs> and over. And that's what we do. We come in here and we have the same conversation in little, little different ways. And there's a few different core aspects to it. But once you've been coming for even just a few months, you've heard most all of it. I've, I've, I always feel like if you read one kind of decent Dharma book, one decent Buddhist book, uh, probably that book has given you all of the teachings. And um, in, in kind of concise, like here it is, learn non-attachment, <laughs> learn compassion, learn forgiveness, uh, and you won't suffer so much. And then we get together every week over and over and over and say, okay, let's remind each other, let's talk about this and let's sit and, and train our minds to be less attached and more compassionate and, and more loving towards ourselves and each other. And then we will uh, suffer less. And that's the whole, whole goal. Um, so thanks for joining me and joining each other on this opportunity to practice together. We'll start with a 30 minute guided meditation. I'll give some instructions and then we'll have a, a talk, a lecture and some discussion. So uh, find a way to sit that's suitable, upright, relaxed. Adjust the posture so that the back is upright, but the torso is relaxed, the belly soft as possible. Allowing our hands to just rest. Letting go of all of the unnecessary tension in the body. And establishing a wise intention for your practice. Remembering why you're choosing to meditate. As you relax into the upright posture with an attitude, hopefully of friendliness, of kindness. The intention to be patient and tolerant of your own mind, body. Establishing awareness of the breath, bringing mindfulness to the sensations that the breath creates. Allowing everything else to recede into the background, the thoughts, 
may continue, but in the background, sounds and other sensations continue. But we choose to place our attention for the first few minutes in the practice of mindfulness of breathing. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in, feel it, receive it, give it your full attention, breathing out. Feel it, receive the sensations of exhaling with full attention. And when we're new to the practice, it can be useful to note in and out with each breath or to even count the breath. Just to help us stay focused and present, gathering the attention. And when we become involved in thinking about the future or the past, or some fantasy, just acknowledge it as a thought without being contentious towards it, being friendly, just the mind thinking. And bringing your attention back to the breath, gently, but consistently returning.
the more interest we can bring to the simple, perhaps subtle experience of our own breath, the more insight we may have into our relationship to sensation, how addicted to our own minds we are. Each time we disengage, return to the breath, investigating the impermanent nature of sensation, how it's constantly changing.
can choose to remain with the attention focused on the breath or begin to expand. Become inclusive of your other sensations in the body. Opening to the other senses of hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting. To the experience of thoughts and emotions that are present here now. Whatever you're paying attention to, whether it's a thought or a feeling or a sound, investigate the changing nature of that experience. How is it changing? Buddhism has a very simple equation that it's teaching us. And that is if we cling, we suffer. So right here in your meditation practice, attempt to not cling to any thought or sensation. To let go, to let whatever is arising in your mind to pass through without clinging to it, whatever's happening in your body to be present.
mental and emotional clinging often create tension in the body, clenching our jaw, hardening our heart. tightening our stomachs. With each exhale, try to soften, physically release, and help release the clinging in the mind. Keep softening, keep letting go, letting go of the past, much as you can, letting go of the future, as much as you can. Letting go of needing this present experience to be any different than it is, any more pleasant or peaceful. Accepting ourselves, our experience, just as it is right now.
Uh, would you um, turn the AC maybe like to 73 or something? I don't know. It has a mind of its own. Sometimes it just gets colder and colder. I think it's a skillful practice after a period of formal meditation to reflect for a moment on what just happened in your mind. Where did your mind go? How present were you able to stay? How involved in plans, memories, fantasies did you become? What could you... Upon reflection, what can you learn about your experience? I've been experiencing some suffering the last couple of weeks around a um, a friend breakup. Um, kind of what what feels like uh, the end of a somewhat long term friendship and a couple of people that were um, pretty dear to me and close and incredibly. Um, kind and generous and supportive to me the last uh, couple years and some uh, difficult times in my life and and we um, we came to an impasse around uh, in our relationship around um, views and kind of political views and um, political views about um, social justice and community organizing and um, what is the right way to organize communities. And um, we had uh, very different, different views. And to the point where like we couldn't quite um, continue uh, in the kind of creation of community together because uh, their vision for uh, what that community would look like was much different than my vision of what the community would look like. And so we came to this um, thing that kind of devolved into like a, a breakup and the sort of end of a uh, friendship and colleagueship and And a lot of it comes down to 
um, I mean, uh, suffering and, and, you know, the difficulty of conflict and, but then uh, what the mind does with resentment, what the mind does with um, blame and judgment and fear and, um, so anyways, I thought I'd explore it a bit. Uh, where, where it all comes back to for me is forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is something I learned in Buddhist meditation realm. And it's been my constant uh, practice and companion for over 30 years now. And, and um, so I want to talk a little bit about this and, and come around to some conversation about the importance of forgiveness and the practice of forgiveness. And I didn't do forgiveness meditation because um, I really wanted to just sit with the uh, impermanence. And like when, when we're doing mindfulness, when we're looking at our breath and our mind and our body, and uh, what we see if we're paying attention is that everything's changing, everything's arising, sustaining and passing, every sensation, every thought, every emotion. Uh, every breath, the breath is, the Buddha actually said at one point that the breath itself will teach you almost everything you need to know. It'll teach you impermanence. If you really pay attention to your breath, you'll become intimate and in, in tune with the reality that everything that arises passes, <laughs> everything that comes goes, everything is impermanent. And then the breath will also teach us that because everything's impermanent, that uh, nothing is really reliable, including relationships. Um, and I put a lot of emphasis on the, in the instructions around uh, non-clinging. And this is, this is the core skill that we're building. It's one of the core skills that we're building in in mindfulness and Buddhist practice, which is um, as much as, uh, however much we cling is however much we suffer. And it's just sort of like one plus one <laughs> equals two. You cling, you suffer, period. But we're born into these minds and bodies that cling. Um, neuroscience, I was looking at some neuroscience thing a long time ago and it said really like, uh, because of our survival instinct that the part of the mind that experiences pleasure uh, is kind of like Teflon, like pleasure just doesn't stick. It's just like, it's why our cravings are so repetitive because no matter how good it is, how much pleasure you have, it's not enough. The mind, the body, the instinctually just crave, and, and the, you, don't, you know, the pleasure just slides right off. But the pain, the part, the pain receptors, the painful experiences hang around. And, and this article is saying, it's almost like that part of our brain uh, is like Velcro. And it's just like, it's just that fucking hurt. Remember this, stick to it, cling to it, <laughs> cling to your pain. You notice that in your life that there's kind of the, the good times are like, where are they? <laughs> and they're just craving from, but the pain is like right there. This in meditation, you sit down, does your, I mean, some, sometimes we sit in meditation and reminisce about the good old days when everything was perfect in 19, 
86 or whenever it was, <laughs> when, you know, uh, when it was perfect for a moment. And so sometimes our minds go into the pleasures, fantasy, um, but I feel like so often we're just wired in this way that we're uh, looking for what's wrong and what's threat and what's uh, painful and what's unpleasant and then um, resenting it, judging it, fearing it, catastrophizing. And I, I feel like a lot of our meditation practices, um, especially for the, the unpleasant ones and that Velcro-like aspect of our mind that wants to cling to it, it's like some sort of unfastening, uh, I don't know what it is, but like uh, somehow helps loosen the grip. Just the mindfulness, understanding and permanence helps us to start let go and then loosen the grip and accept like, okay, these are just painful thoughts and feelings and memories and that are rising and passing through. Um, but the forgiveness practice and the loving kindness practice, what we call the heart practices, uh, in my experience, do uh, so much more to help me let go of that clinging to the pain of the past, the resenting, the judging, the blaming. When I start to replace those thoughts and feelings with forgiveness, that it trains my mind uh, to go down a different neuropathway rather than staying in the, uh, and this, there's this book that I'm going to, from my teacher, uh, Ajahn Amaro, and it's a book and it's about loving kindness, but he titled it, it's just this tiny little book. And he, he titled the book, um, I'm right, you're wrong. And it's about loving kindness and about how, uh, how much suffering we get ourselves into with the I'm right, you're wrong. And how much conflict and uh, you know, extra unnecessary suffering we get into clinging to being right. Uh, and it will destroy relationships and, and affect communities and The Buddha said there's four types of clinging. And I feel like mostly I talk about the first type. The first type is the clinging, clinging, which also means craving. Clinging and craving, which also mean aversion. <laughs> so when I say clinging, know that I'm talking not only about attachment, but I'm also talking about craving is, is a form of clinging. I want, I need to have, I'm craving, uh, is, is clinging. Uh, and also I can't stand it. I can't bear it. I, I aversion wanted to get rid of it is also clinging. It doesn't quite right. Aversion seems different than clinging, but it's, it's all in this basket in Buddhism of the way we suffer by trying to control what's happening, whether it's trying to keep it or get rid of it, both in this uh, encompassed in clinging. So the first one is clinging uh, to sense pleasures. And I think that's what we're, that's the conversation, the core of our conversation most of the time, craving for pleasure, aversion to pain. Do you feel like that's how most of your suffering is generated? I'm clinging, I'm craving for 
something to feel more pleasant than it does, or I'm aversive to what's happening. I'm not accepting it. I'm, I'm hating it. I'm... Most of, I feel like a lot of our, our suffering is generated by that kind of clinging to sense pleasures. And then the, there's um, the second one, he, he said, the way that, it, that spiritual people, especially like, uh, like worldly people who are just going through the world, kind of asleep, chasing pleasure, running from pain. They're just, you know, suffering <laughs> about the craving and the clinging. He said, but then when we get on a spiritual path or a religious kind of path, he said, then there's this whole special kind of suffering of the suffering of clinging to blind faith clinging to, you know, views about I, my religion is right, my spiritual views are right, yours are wrong. Um, and then even with people who we agree with, clinging to precepts, and the kind of like in, in Buddhism, we practice the five precepts. But if you hang around Buddhists long enough, someone will tell you that you're not doing it right. That you're not, you know, you're, uh, you're well, that was wrong speech, David. Uh, or, you know, that was, um, you just killed a mosquito, Judy, you just broke a precept, you know, and kind of this attachment to not only how we live, but the kind of judgment of others and this attachment and this controlling of, hey, you're not, has anybody said to you yet, that wasn't very Buddhist of you? People. <laughs> People love to say that shit to me. Um, not very Buddhist. Like you, you're, you're swearing, you're, you know, whatever you're doing, it's not very Buddhist. It's, it's wrong speech. And in the, in the, you know, the Buddha aware of this, he said, you know, people will suffer a lot about our clinging to um, precepts and rituals and religious ideas and um, not using it as a tool for our own liberation, but for another thing that we cling to and suffer about. The third one, I feels like the, the most difficult to speak about, but it is also the central uh, villain in our experience, which is uh, clinging to I, me, and mine clinging to uh, the self as though it's something tangible and I am mad at you. <laughs> and, you know, even the, the title of this, I am right. You are wrong. And how much do you suffer about that sort of self-centered I, me, mine? And we cling to it rather than wear it a bit loosely. I mean, the Buddhist, part of the Buddhist goal and, and trajectory is coming to see that this I and me and mine is a natural phenomena of having a human brain and, and body, but it's not so personal. It's the universal human condition that we are all self-centered. But when you start to wake up, you start to see like, oh, that's just my self-centered mind. That's not actually who I am. I think meditation, you get that experience in meditation because like you sit here and on some level or another, we're telling our minds to 
shut up for a little while while we pay attention to our breath in the beginning and your mind keeps thinking and then you start to wake up of like, oh, I'm not, that's not who I am. My mind has a mind of its own and it plans and it remembers and it judges and it fears and it lusts and it resents and it does all of the things that a mind does. And the more you see that, the more you start to see that's not I, that's not me. That's just the human condition being known by awareness, consciousness. If that makes sense to you, cool. If not, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, I want to just say how the core of love for me is loving kindness practice is to let go of whether you think you have to protect your corner of the universe. Yeah. You know, let go of that. And, and then suddenly empathy becomes much easier. And, yeah. And then you realize, like, wait, what, what exactly was I protecting? actually know anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's that ego, but um, I don't think that we're ever going to become egoless. It's how do we relate to the ego, which is just natural and it's not your fault and it's not it's just part of having a brain. You have an ego. You have an I, a me, a mine, but it's not our true identity. And it's just no, and it's not worth protecting all that much, defending and so the fourth part of this and, and where Ajahn Amaro kind of uh, is taking this, uh, I am right, you are wrong, uh, is into the fixed view of how much we believe our thoughts and, and our views and our opinions and we incarnate as I am this thought I had, which is it should be this way. And I'm gonna, you know, and this is the hill I'm gonna die on because the thought arose in my mind or I, you know, I studied, I contemplated, I, whatever it is. And I've decided this is the way it has to be. And I'm fixed on that. And there's no other way for it to be. So again, you know, as I, I really encourage you, as I say these things to reflect, uh, do you, does it resonate? Do you see those tendencies in your own mind, in your own life? Or, or other people that you're in relationships with. And in the Metta Sutta, the Buddha says, um, towards the end, after he gives the meditation instruction, in the meditation instruction in Metta, which is loving kindness, he says, uh, radiate kindness over the entire world. Train your heart and your mind to wish, may all beings be at ease. And so to really just be kind and wishing for ease and developing this radical thought that isn't so self-centered and so I, me, mine, but is may all beings be at ease. And after, you know, saying in order to do this, we have to free ourselves from hatred and ill will and uh, practice forgiveness. There's a line there where he says, um, by not holding to fixed views, an order, an aspect of loving kindness is not holding to our fixed views of I'm right, even if you believe it, not having to be, not having to be so attached to it, not having to suffer about it. Because of course, we all have an opinion. We all have a view. But clinging to our views as the only possible, as like the ultimate reality, and for sure I'm right, 
I always wonder I, of my own mind and how much evidence do we need that we have so often been mistaken? I mean, when you reflect on your life, how many times were you so fucking convinced that you were right? But upon retrospect, you're like, oh, well, I was, I was wrong then. But this time, and pretty much every time, do you pretty much believe your mind all of the time? Pretty sure that whatever your mind tells you is true? Or do you have a healthy skepticism? Some of you have the enough wisdom, enough humility to be like, now my mind, bad advice, <laughs> untrustworthy. But even though it gives me bad advice and it's untrustworthy, most of the time I'm pretty sure it's right. <laughs> even though I have all of this evidence to show me that, you know, it told me that smoking crack and committing crimes was a good idea and I did it. <laughs> That's the mind that I'm obeying. This mind that doesn't have my own best interest. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense cravings, is not born again into this world. Like that this is the step. I mean, born again into this world just means like born again into suffering, incarnating as suffering over and over. In order to free ourselves from suffering, we have to break our addiction to obeying our minds and that clinging to, to fixed views. And it's so much easier said than done because of the Velcro in your brain. <laughs> your brain clings all by itself. It's not like you're telling your brain to cling. It's not like, it's not like we're kind of sitting around going like, you know what, I should really hold on to this shit. Your mind just holds on to it. It's just fucking in there. It's attached. Your brain does it all by yourself. And one of the things I love about Buddhism, unlike some other uh, perspectives, is that it normalizes it. And there's this core message in the Dharma of like, it's not your fault that you're such a, it's not your fault that you're such a self-centered, arrogant, suffering jerk. It's not your fault. It's just what it's like to be a human being. Yours, I, me, mine, clinging, clinging, clinging. It's just what we've incarnated into. Believing our views and opinions are the truth. It's a story here from the book I want to share with you about. So Ajahn Amaro, who wrote this book, uh, one of my core Dharma teachers for about 30 years now, I met him when I was, I think I did my first meditation retreat with him when I was about 20, maybe 21 years old, and um, I've maintained a relationship with him for the last 30 years. His teacher was Ajahn Chah and his one of his other teachers, most senior monks in that uh, lineage, named Ajahn Sumedho, and this is a story about Ajahn Sumedho. 
In the early days of Ajahn Chah's monastery, Ajahn Sumedho was the only Westerner living there. He was a very ardent, idealistic monk who took the monastic training extremely seriously and was very committed, as all good monastics should be. But, he'd been, but he had grown up in an atmosphere of righteous American conditioning and had a different way of going about things than from some of the other monks in the monastery. A Thai monk who was also living there was very loud-mouthed and outspoken, incautious about his speech. This was extremely unusual in Thailand, where people tend to be much more restrained, non-confrontational, or outspoken, or outspoken in average social interactions. The young Bhikkhu Sumedho took great offense at this monk's behavior and thought, this is totally out of order. Why isn't Ajahn Chah saying anything? He lets this guy just carry on and make a fool of himself and upset everybody. And everyone can see he's out of order, but no one is saying anything. This is ridiculous. Someone ought to get up. And, and even though I'm a junior monk, I really ought to. If somebody doesn't say something, I will. This went on for some months. And he grew more and more indignant. Eventually, Ajahn Chah went off to visit a branch monastery for a few days. And it happened that at the same time, there was the fortnightly recitation of the monastic rule, after which the teacher gives an instructional talk and then asks, is there any business, with the song, any business that the Sangha wants to bring up? With Ajahn Chah away, it was thus one of the senior monks leading the meeting who said, has anyone got any business to discuss? And even though Ajahn Sumedho had only been a monk for two or three years, and the loudmouth Biko, Biku, Biku means monk, was a bit senior to him, he said, Yes, I've got something I'd like to bring up. I am very concerned about the conduct of Biku X. And he had a whole list of different occasions. He had witnesses, he had the evidence, he had all his criteria. Everything was lined up, and he was right. And all of the things for which he criticized the monk were factually valid. You could see that the other people had been upset or they took offense and walked away and so on. While Ajahn Sumedho was saying this, the offending monk was looking at the floor and everyone else was listening, taking it all in. Finally, he got, into the, got to the end of his Dhammic diatribe and the senior monk said, We'll just wait for Lungpur Cha gets back and then we'll bring this matter to his attention. A few days later, Ajahn Cha returned. The word reached him pretty quickly about this outrageous confrontation by the foreign monk. He took note of that. But before Ajahn Cha came back, the monk who'd been criticized and shamed in this way left the monastery and was never seen again. After a few days, Ajahn Chah found a moment to chat with Ajahn Sumedho and said, you know, Tan Sumedho, what you said about that loudmouth monk, you did something very harmful there. You meant well, but what you did was harmful because even though the expression he used in Thai was, I won't even try to pronounce it, which means his mouth is evil, but his heart is good. He's got bad verbal habits. I knew that, of course. Everyone knows that. 
But how many monasteries do you think that fellow had to leave before he came here? This was the one place where he could stay and practice because I made space for him. But now you've closed the door on him and you've taken, and you have to take the responsibility for that. He can't stay here anymore because you shamed him publicly. And so you have to acknowledge that that was poorly done on your part. You were right in fact, but wrong in Dhamma. Such a, I think, powerful example of when, you know, we can be totally right and righteous and use it as a sword to cause harm. Rather than, uh, you know, he could have used that as his practice of like, oh, yeah, this, this monk, this loudmouth monk is teaching me about patience and tolerance and compassion and forgiveness rather than chasing them off. Nice, friendly people don't give us any opportunity for compassion. I, I once heard a lecture um, from John Borisenko. He spent two hours talking about uh, mental illness and disorder and how important it was to be supportive to, to people who suffered from that. And I was with my daughter and, and he left. And I bumped into a friend of mine who's bipolar, whose meds were all screwed up. So he was um, exceedingly squirrely. And, and as we walked away, she said, how can you be friends with that guy? He's so awful. And I was like, you just listened to two hours of compassion for people who struggle. Like, really? Yeah. You know, I mean, really? Yeah, there's the challenge, you know, is, is to hold space for the people that are difficult. That's the challenge. I know you've heard me tell the story before, uh, which feels appropriate here, of um, a similar story to this where there was a really difficult person in the community and the community was like, ah, oh, this person is so difficult. And they uh, chased that difficult person away. Um, and then the, and the, when the teacher was away or something, the teacher came back and said like, where did so-and-so go? Um, and so we, we got rid of him. He was a pain in the ass. <laughs> and, um, and the teacher said, you know, this community needs that. We, we need those opportunities. This isn't a place where there's not going to be any conflict. How are we going to learn compassion? How are we going to learn patience and tolerance? And if we're all just nice to each other all the time, that, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. I thought you were here to get free. If you want to get free, it's going to be in the conflicts and in the difficulties that we're going to get free. And, um, and then uh, the story goes that they actually... The teacher said, go find him. And if he won't come back, pay him to come back. I want him on staff. <laughs> because you fake ass spiritual people who are just going to get along all of the time aren't going to wake up if you don't have some appropriate conflict in your life. This book goes on. Um, to a piece that I think is really important where he talks about right. So in Buddhism, we have, because I've seen this in my own practice, how I've become uh, at times uh, fundamental about I'm a Buddhist. 
and I'm right, and Buddhism is right, and I have the right views, and Christianity is bullshit, and Judaism is bullshit, and Islam is bullshit, and Taoism is bullshit, psychology is bullshit, science is bullshit, Buddhism is true. <laughs> I've seen that in my own, especially when I was in my 20s, and I was like, Buddhism's the fucking best, and not only Buddhism, but Theravadan Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism is bullshit, Zen is bullshit, Theravadan, we are right. And seeing how like attached to, and it's that, you know, second attachment to the, you know, beliefs and the precepts and, um, and the suffering in that clinging and that righteousness. And there's a little bit of a setup in, in the traditional uh, eightfold path, which is traditionally translated as right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, <laughs> right livelihood, <laughs> right mindfulness, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Don't do the wrong concentration. Do the right, do it the right way. <laughs> Don't do the wrong mindfulness, the right mindfulness. But in this book, Amaro says, you know, this word that we're translating as right, or sometimes we translate as wise, or um, he said, actually, the word is sama, S-A-M-M-A. And what it, we translate it as right, but what it really means is upright. And upright um, as in balanced, as in not wobbling from side to side, but being uh, in a balanced, upright posture. And so it's not being correct the way that we think of right, it's being upright. Not, you know, and so there's this great piece here. And I thought I found that I find this so useful. He's actually quoting another monk, uh, Tanisaro. Conditions pertaining to enlightenment would be like an instrument tuned to a discordant scale and would not be in harmony with the way of the contemplative, the meditator, who aims at a life in tune with the Dhamma. This, uh, and then the second point, another musical analogy. Just as a musical instrument should neither be too sharp nor too flat, the mind on the path has to find balance between excessive energy and excessive stillness. At the same time, it must be constantly watching out for the tendency for its energy to slacken in the same way that the stringed instruments tend to go flat. The rightness of right view and other facts, factors of the path that carries the connotation not only of being correct, but also of being just right. The, the tune, when you're tuning the instrument, not too tight, not too loose, just right, balanced. And so Amaro goes on to make these great points about that experience with Samedo yelling at the loudmouth monk and shaming him. He said, you were right, but it wasn't the Dhamma because it was out of attunement. If you were attuned to the situation of how much suffering this person was in, then you wouldn't yell at them and shame them and scare them off. You would meet them with compassion. You would speak to them privately. You would take it on as your own practice rather than staying in that I'm right, this person is wrong and I'm going to beat you over the head with my 
righteousness, we're out of attunement, we're out of connection, out of harmony with the Dhamma, the Dhamma that teaches us to let go, the Dhamma that teaches us to be compassionate, the Dhamma that teaches us to forgive, out of attunement. Even though, as Ajahn Chah said to him, you're right, but not in accordance with the Dhamma. You weren't balanced in your response. So for me, as I sit with this um, conflict and the grief of loss and the, um, the sadness and the kind of uh, some feelings of, of guilt and regret and, and questioning my own, like, could I have shown up differently? Was I too fixed to my views? Was there a way to navigate this in a different way? I just come back to forgiveness. Forgiveness for my own mind and um, from the ways that I uh, sometimes believe my mind, even when it's giving me bad advice and offering forgiveness to uh, people, you know, in this circumstance that I uh, feel harmed by and feel like our community is being harmed by. And, this is a poem from a Christian, even though I'm right and they're wrong. <laughs> a Christian mystic named Henry Nowen. Uh, and I heard this probably 25 years ago in a Dharma talk, and I just remembered it and loved it. And, and he said, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. And I've just, this just always resonated of like, you know, saying it's all about love feels so cheesy, but it also feels so true. And especially when there's a loss of a loving relationship and there was, and there's the grief and, and forgiveness is the name of love, it's the practice, it's the appropriate attuned response to the mind, you know, to the mind's Velcro tendency to cling and uh, judge and resent and replacing that tendency with the loving response, which is forgiveness. He goes on to say, the hard truth is that all of us love poorly. So just take that on for a moment, you know, and, and watch that part of your mind that's like, not me, I'm really good at loving. It's everybody else that's shitty at it. Forgiveness is the name of love for those of us who love poorly. And the hard truth is all of us love poorly. Nobody's very good at it. We're all born into this system that has clinging and aversion and self-centeredness, which makes staying loving and unconditionally accepting each other, even when we're annoying the shit out of each other, hard, without forgiveness, impossible. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, 
unceasingly. This is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. And I think the reason that this is used, even though it comes from a Christian mystical tradition um, by Buddhists, is because it, it resonates so much around uh, the normalizing. All of us, we're all in this together, and that it's hard work that we're doing, um, and that it's not when I came in earlier, or I was here earlier, and Judy, long-term student and friend, um, she said, can I ask you something? I said, yeah, sure. She said, um, have you forgiven everybody that, you know, kind of fucked you over a couple of years ago? <laughs> she didn't say that, but that's what I heard. And, and I said, um, well, <laughs> I said, I'm practicing forgiveness towards them. I said, to say I've forgiven, it's too final. It's too like, I'm done with that. And that's what like this poem, this, this saying, it's the to be done every day, every un, hour unceasingly. Forgiveness isn't some destination of like, I forgive you as just words, but freeing my heart and my mind from clinging, the Velcro clinging, <laughs> is a long-term process that was not, I can't just say I forgive you and be done with it. I have to do the meditation daily. Uh, and as he says, every day, every hour unceasingly, that forgiveness becomes our mantra, it becomes our perspective, it becomes our mind training. Um, and that's been my experience and continues to be in my experience that forgiveness is a ongoing necessity in loving relationships. While they're going on, while there's conflict in them, and when they end. And I think often we think of forgiveness as just about the aftermath of big betrayals or something, but it's so much more than that. It's so much a, uh, being attuned to those moments of conflict and difficulty that we have in all relationships at some point or another. The more I forgive, the less I suffer. And, um, you know, I started by saying I've been suffering some. And it's because I, I don't have uh, the ability to perfectly forgive. I can't remove the Velcro from my brain that likes to, you know, cling. <laughs> but the more we practice meditation, mindfulness helps loosen it. Loving kindness helps loosen it. Forgiveness, I find, really helps loosen the identification with the mind's tendency to resent. So those are my thoughts for tonight. We have a few minutes if people want to um, ask any questions or make any comments or clarifications about any part of this. Talk about I'm right, you're wrong, and uh, forgiveness is the solution, is my sense, please.
thinking about that story in the book um, and how when he said that in front of all those people and kind of shamed him, obviously that was wrong, but is there a time when is the right time sometimes to tell somebody something, you know, that they're doing something wrong or is there, or is it just never the right time? <laughs> you just always keep it to yourself. Could you hear at home the question? Um, uh, reflecting on that uh, part of the, the, the story about Samedo and shaming the guy in public and it seeming to be the, the wrong time. Um, but is there ever a right time when we're uh, to, to confront someone about bad behavior, real or perceived? <laughs> Uh, the, for, I think that for sure the answer is yes, there is an appropriate time and that we certainly don't want to kind of become just total doormats for bad, bad behavior and have no boundaries and no conflict. And um, But that's where the attunement, that's where I like this sort of understanding, uh, uh, being attuned to when's the right time and place and, and even um, attuned speech you know, what we call right speech, attuned, you know, when we're attuned and there's, there's these, uh, is it true what I want to say? Is it um, appropriate for me? Am I the one to communicate it? Like in that case, it wasn't some, you know, it was Ajahn Chah's like, let the boss deal with it. It's not my job to, uh, you know, police the Sangha, right? Let the, <laughs> let the abbot do that, right? It's his job. It's my job to just deal with it. There's somebody who has that role. It's not my role. Um, is it true? Is it appropriately? Is it the appropriate time? Right? And so looking at that story, like, yeah, don't shame someone in public. If you are the right person, take them aside and have a private conversation. Sit down, have an attuned one-on-one -on -one and, you know, kind of what's going on and can I, is there a way to work with this? Um, so the answer for sure is yes, if we're the right person and it's the right time and it's coming from a place of love and forgiveness and not self-righteous, judgmental punishing, right? That, that kind of, I want to, uh, you've annoyed me for so long, I want to hurt you publicly. I want to shame you. Um, not, not right speech, not, not attuned communication in that case, but there is a wise way to do it for sure. My son, yeah, it's part of it. Uh, we have to be willing to have conflict. And I also feel like I err on the side of, uh, I'm not saying that this is right, but it's, it's true about me. Uh, I think I err on the side of um, taking the risk to have the difficult conversations rather than avoiding them. And it's backfired on me a whole bunch you know, um, because not, not the right time, not the right. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again real quick. I was teaching a retreat with my teacher with Cornfield and it was a spirit rock retreat. And it was a big retreat and I'd been teaching it for years, but I'd always had some conflict with a couple of the teachers there that I was teaching with. And, um, just before we were doing our sort of opening teachers gathering to, um, Cornfield took me aside and he said, you know, Noah, what you're doing at, against the stream is so good because uh, from what I understand, like you're like holding each other accountable and you confront each other and you, you know, you're really like uh, 
you know, you're not afraid of conflict. He's like, I'm terrified of conflict. And Spirit Rock is a fucking mess because none of us tell each other the truth. And he's like, maybe I, I actually want you, I want this, your, maybe you could actually come teach us how to do this, you know, kind of conflict, you know, truth telling that you guys do. And I got all puffed up and I was like, <laughs> yeah, my teacher's like telling me that I'm doing it better than he is. So then we sit down to the check-ins and I'm all puffed up. <laughs> And he's like, so how does everybody feel? And I was like, I'll go. I was like, I don't think that person should be a Dharma teacher. You're lying every time we're together. And I like totally like called out all of these Dharma teachers. And it just imploded the whole fucking thing. And he was like, dude, that's not what I was talking about. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? Like, uh. And one teacher was like, if he doesn't, if Noah doesn't go home, I'm going home. I was like, she's a fucking liar. Like, she's full of shit. Like, um, not the right use of truth telling or sharing my views and opinions, <laughs> even though like, you know, I, I totally felt set up afterwards. I was like, dude, you fucking set me up. <laughs> <laughs> okay thank you noah that's a good story um <laughs> uh, so, okay so i'm having trouble uh why can't the velcro work for sticking forgiveness in my brain as easily as it does the resentment why can't the Velcro work for the positive? Why is it clinging to the negative? Because the, the bridge, right? Like I, I, you know, I understand that, you know, forgiveness is a remedy to get out of the resentment, <clears throat> but it is such a long, in certain cases, not all the time, but in certain cases, sure. It is a long bridge to cross. That gap between the two is big. And I'm, you know, what, what, how can I make it so the bridge is shorter? How can I make the Velcro work on the positive? Um, I'm going to answer your question, which is why. <laughs> why? Because, uh, first of all, I have no fucking idea, but I'm going to tell you my, what I think anyways. Here's what I think. Um, I think that we're products of millions and millions of years of human evolution and that we are animals ruled by an survival instinct and that our survival instinct is aversion to pain that created these Velcro-like ripples in our brain when it comes to remember the fucking pain because remembering pain will save your life and allow your species to continue to proliferate. And forgiveness is not a necessary survival instinct and has not been developed or evolved in our species because you don't need it. We are having this conversation because we want to be happy. <laughs> uh, evolution doesn't give a shit about happiness natural selection, you know, kind of doesn't give a shit of, well, either you're happy or not. It just wants you to survive and procreate. That's all. 
fuck and run from pain. That's the programming. That's it. So, but we're over here going like, well, but we're like modern, you know, intelligent uh, people and we want to be happy. But that's not what our, our, our evolution is. Our evolution is like, is it going to eat me or can I eat it? Or, and that's what we're still living with these reptilian brains that hold on to pain. Buddhism is fucking radical because it's saying with long term effort, you can reprogram your mind. The natural default setting is you're going to suffer a lot and you're going to be ruled by craving and clinging and aversion. Normal. Meditate every day for the next rest of your life. <laughs> and you'll start to see, oh, I'm changing my relationship to those default settings of craving and aversion and self-centeredness, and I'm suffering less and less and less. But there's no quick way. There's no quicker bridge. It's just, there's a Tibetan story. I don't know if you've heard it. I think it's Milarepa or Nargajuna, one of those famous Tibetans, maybe David knows, who lived in a, you know, was a kind of a bad guy. I think it's Milarepa. He was a bad guy and he murdered all of these people. And then he got converted and went and lived in a cave and developed all of this compassion and, and uh, forgiveness. And, you know, like, and at one point he became this like saint, this enlightened, compassionate being. And people came up to him and they were like, how did you become so compassionate? And he pulled up his Buddhist robes and he showed him the calluses on his ass. And you say, you say, you see these calluses on my ass? That's how I became compassionate. I sat and I sat and I sat and I practiced compassion and I practiced forgiveness and I practiced compassion. And you get compassion by the calluses on your ass from getting on your cushion every day for the rest of your life. And it's not a quick fix. It's a gradual awakening. I mean, I'm over here talking about shit I did after 20 years of practice, yelling at the other teachers and, you know, you're 33 years of recovery and practice and I'm still doing this forgiveness and I still have all these resentments and I still keep, you know, having all these conflicts. I've, you know, I'm suffering less and less about it, but it hasn't been quick for me. It's not quick for anybody. Anybody that tells you about their awakening and how everything's great now. It's not how it works. Sorry for the bad news. Just check in, see if you have <laughs> <laughs> The good news is you're on the right path and I'm sure you're seeing that it's working a little bit and that the consistency of continuing to do it will give you a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more. And after 10 years or so, you'll say like, oh, like, oh, I'm, I'm a lot better at this than I used to be. And at 20 years, you'll be like, oh yeah, I'm suffering a lot less. And at 30 years, you're like, wow, I can fucking handle anything. Go ahead, burn my, you know, house down. I'll forgive you. That's enough for tonight. Thank you for your um, 
presence and your reflection on these teachings. As always, you know, reflect on it, see what makes sense, what's useful to you, and do as you see fit. Um, Against the Stream is a nonprofit organization that is supported by the generosity of the donations of the people who attend. So if you're attending, please consider making a donation. We suggest a $15 to $20 donation for the Monday night drop-in class. Um, I don't have uh, the uh, card reader together yet, or did we get it together? I think we did. So, okay, we can actually take donations here in person from cards if you'd like to make a donation on your card, or you can do Venmo, or you can do cash. If you're at home, um, you can. Um, there's a link in the bio um, that uh, Jeff and Emily have posted, so you can donate that way. And please consider becoming a monthly supporter of Against the Stream, where you say, I appreciate what we're doing here, and I just want to help out by making a monthly donation, regardless of your attendance. So please consider that. There's a couple of retreats coming up. We have a seven-day silent meditation retreat that is available for registration in Joshua Tree. It's October 10th through 17th this, this coming fall. Um, there's limited space. There's still space available. You can have a double room. You can camp. Um, there might be a couple of single rooms left, but I think they're pretty close to being sold out. So if you're planning to come to the retreat, register sooner rather than later. And um, if you haven't been on a retreat and seven days sounds like a lot, it's, it is a lot. But, you know, those retreats that I was talking about doing when I was 20 years old, fresh out of juvenile hall and newly sober, uh, were seven-day retreats, you know, with these monks. And, and I just feel for sure, like, I, if I could do it in that kind of fucked up young place that I was at, uh, anybody can do it, you know, and so this like, oh, that's too much. It's just fear. Actually, you can come, you can be on retreat, you'll be fine. You'll suffer some, but suffering is okay. And then you'll come out of it going like, wow, I fucking did something really cool. And I benefited from it for sure. And of course, it'll be difficult. That's part of what we're doing is we're doing the difficult path that brings about some reliable freedom, not the like, uh, let's go on a yoga retreat and drink wine. That's not, it's not our scene. Um, it's like, let's go into silence and let's go deep and let's train our minds and let's get some freedom. So I hope a lot of you come to that. There's also a three-day refuge recovery retreat in November. Information for that's on the refugerecovery.org website. And I keep promising to schedule a day long. I will do that soon. It's already almost July. I'll get another day long on the books and um, I'll see you next week. Many goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions. May each one of us free ourselves and together may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.